Yo, what's up, everybody? My name is Sean, and this is my podcast. It's called Yo, What's Up? Today you're listening to episode four, wherein I share my interview with Dr. James Anthony. Dr. Anthony was born in Fiji in 1935, and he grew up in the capital city of Suva. As a young man at age 24, he organized and led the first general workers strike in Suva, which took place in December 1959. The outcome of this strike generally raised the standard of living across the board for working-class Fijians, and it played a key role in advancing the movement in Fijian society that eventually led to Fiji's independence from British rule about 10 years later. In the years that followed the 1959 strike, Dr. Anthony went on to earn a PhD in political science. He later worked for the Australian government, as well as worked as a professor of law and political science at the University of Hawaii. In 1974, Dr. Anthony helped a group of Fijians to successfully organize and sue the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for labor law violations at the Polynesian Cultural Center which it owns and operates on the eastern or windward side of Oahu in Hawaii. Several years after that, in 1987, Dr. Anthony helped residents on windward Oahu to again sue the church for their practice of secretly and illegally dumping sewage on the outskirts of the town of Laie, a practice that polluted local agricultural land and contributed to the ecological destruction of Laie Bay. The result of this suit set a precedent for environmental law on Oahu, and it put large and wealthy organizations like the Mormon Church on notice that they could not abuse publicly shared resources and degrade the environment without consequence. In this interview, Dr. Anthony and I talk about his personal history and early life in Fiji. We talk about the start of his career and the events behind the 1959 workers' strike. And we talk about his life as an advocate for the public against those who use their power to violate civil rights and degrade the common good. Dr. Anthony has been someone who I've had the good fortune of knowing and calling a friend over the years. And it's with great pleasure that I share this interview that I did with him. I hope you enjoy it too. Stay tuned for Dr. James Anthony. Jim, thanks for sitting down with me today. Sure. Um, it's uh, it's good to be here with you in your home, and, uh, and I appreciate you taking a little time to talk with me uh, about uh, who you are and some of the things that you've done. Yes, today, of course. Today's uh, December uh, 17th, 2016, mm -hmm. and uh, we're, uh, we're uh, on the windward side of Oahu in Hawaii, yep. where we're speaking from. And um, basically what I'd, what I'd like to do in the course of our conversation here is uh, just talk um, about um, who you are and uh, what you've done over the course of your career. Um, so as I've uh, gotten to know you, the person that I've understood you to be is um, someone who um, is a, um, an organizer and a person who helps common people 
to recognize their collective power against large larger and power more powerful organizations would you would you say that's a a uh, an accurate summary of the work you've done yeah you know i can i can elaborate slightly on that and put it in my own words i've always been interested in public and what you would call public interest issues uh -huh. yeah and uh, <clears throat> one really never knows where the inspiration comes from uh -huh. but from a very early age ever since i even before i finished high school i was interested in a sort of haphazard 16-year-old-ish way in the problems of poverty in which I, in which I grew up. We're mm -hmm. uh, a large family, 12 kids eventually. Yeah. And we were what you would call poor, okay. urban poor. Yeah, and then um, I, uh, uh, I began organizing unions at a very early age. Mm -hmm. And then... Um, somewhere along the line, I, after I had led a big strike that we will talk about, um, I went to university, earned an undergraduate degree, a master's degree, and eventually PhD, and um, um, never really had a university career. Mm -hmm but continue to do public interest work in one way or another. Okay. And here I am at 82, still doing public interest work. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's basically the, the rough trajectory of my, my life. Okay, good. Yeah, just uh, in, in broad general terms. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so a career is definitely not over yet, in that sense. Well, no. I, you know, uh, where, there's, where there's life, there's hope. Yeah. And so one clings tenaciously to life. I don't know why. Yeah. But I'm still in there, you know, uh, doing the good fight. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, here we are talking about all of this. Yeah. Well, it, you know, as, as we've talked a little bit over the uh, past couple of weeks, uh, you've been, you haven't been slowing down at all. Um, you know, you're... Yeah, you're, somewhat. You, you know, one yeah. slows down a bit at 82, but in my case, it's not very <laughs> discernible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it's an impressive pace for uh, probably anyone. Um, so you were born in... in Fiji, correct? That's where you uh, were yeah, born and grew that, up? That's one of the great injustices of life. You don't get to choose where you were born. So I was born in Fiji. Yeah. yeah. Well, some would uh, consider that a dream come true in some ways. But it what? A dream come true in some ways. but uh, Not in my case. Not no. in your case. I, tell I have me about some very that. strong feelings about Fiji. Yeah? yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit about that. Well, uh, you know, Fiji is a, is a country uh -huh. where um, uh, I grew up. Um, and um, it was a British colony at the time. Okay. And uh, if you describe something as a British colony, there are certain people of my generation who immediately understand some of the some of what that means. Yeah. I think this generation really doesn't know what that means. Right. So look it, it up. It, yeah, yeah. It was a. It is a situation of mild repression okay um it wasn't as if there was the case fiji was the case of the midnight knock on the door where people were picked up and thrown in prison or sent to a sent to a uh, a uh, prison camp in some kind of distant land um but it was an annoying situation frustrating for me mm -hmm. and that arose partly out of the fact that i was by some 
some trick of nature, perhaps, um, what you would call socially aware. So mm -hmm. I looked around me and I saw that we were poor and a lot of people, other people were poor. Yeah. And uh, that's something that I spent a lot of time thinking about. Even at a young, young age, teenager? Even, even, before even at a young age. I mean, <clears throat> I tried to read Marx when I was 12 years old. And then I realized that I didn't understand the damn thing that, that yeah. I was reading. Uh -huh. And so, you know, even from a very, uh, very early age, I was what you would call intellectually very curious. Yeah. Why Marx? Uh, was it just that was what people who uh, had a disestablishment perspective were no. supposed to read? Or was it something? No, no. I had read somewhere. Uh -huh. that if you, even at 12, 13, my early teens... I just read widely. You know, okay. Anything that I that that was on a printed page, I would I would read. Yeah. And so um, somewhere there in those ramblings, I must have seen some kind of reference to Marx, and I thought, well, you know, maybe I should find out who this guy is. Mm -hmm. So I got some. I um, Bakunin was the first guy that I read. He was an anarchist. And, of course, there was a lot of discussion about Marx in that. And mm -hmm. I realized that a lot of that stuff I really didn't quite understand. Yeah. And then I began reading Fabian Socialists and um, other, you know, humdrum people like, uh, like the British trade union movement. And that's not surprising because Fiji is a British colony. Uh -huh. So that's how I initially became uh, interested in Marx and then drifted off in... Uh, whole bunch of different directions. Yeah. What year was this? Was this in the 40s? Well, I was born in 1935, so uh -huh. if we're talking about when I was... Uh, when I was... Uh, 12, 13? Uh, yeah, 12 or 13, that would make it 35 plus 12 is 47. 47. Yeah, 47, so 48. It, it was just on the cusp of when the Second World War ended. Yeah. Do you remember? I mean, do you remember World War II as being a big event for you in Fiji? Or I, I remember when the church bells began to ring uh -huh. and announced that uh, the war had ended, which is somewhere in the vicinity of forty-six. Yeah, actually, I remember exactly where I was standing when that happened. Oh, really? I was on a street called Huon Street, which is where my uncle had a house, and I was uh -huh. either visiting there or living there. Yeah. But I also remember the Second World War very clearly because there are a large number of American troops in, your in Fiji. Mm -hmm. yeah. And my father, in fact, worked for the American Red Cross, which okay. is an adjunct of the presence of the American troops of The American in Fiji. military. Yeah. yeah. Did, you, uh, did you feel like, uh, this, this might be going a little bit on a tangent, but did you feel like World War II uh, was an interruption in your in your life as a child, or or was it something that you felt kind of largely uh, removed from being uh, kind of way out there in Fiji? No, I didn't. I didn't see it as an interruption. It was uh, something that happened. It was just it happening. Yeah, safely. It had been seamlessly. Um, uh, meshed into uh -huh. our lives in yeah. Fiji. It was a time of some excitement, I yeah. suppose, that yeah. you saw these American troops and their big trucks, you know, running around right. and building things. And, mm. and uh, there were hamburger joints that began to sprout. And, and uh, you know, there were new things that appeared, like 
little cartons of ice cream which we had never seen before. Yeah. Huh. So it was, yeah, I mean, the fact that I can recall it now, hmm. I suppose, means by implication that it was something that we took notice of. Yeah. Well, certainly I remember it very clearly. Sure. But, uh, but, but uh, kind of a benign presence in a way. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, there was, no, there was no political ideological spin that I put on it because mm-hmm. I had yet to begun th- <clears throat> begin thinking <clears throat> politically okay. about events like that. Yeah, well. yeah it, was, it was until after, after the war ended that you, you started to kind of become aware of, of the, your situation in the world. Long like, after. Long after, mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, so, so uh, you began reading and developing your opinions about um, the place and, you know, the, the society you were living in as a teenager. Um, what, you know, what, what else was happening for you at that time? You said I, you, were, you were kind of growing up in poverty and... and uh, I think that there is nothing that, that uh, sharpens the mind of anybody uh-huh. like the immediate circumstances of their lives. So here's a small anecdote that would illustrate that. Okay. <clears throat> I suppose I was 16, which is the year that I finished high school. Mm-hmm. I finished high school way ahead of everybody else. Yeah. And I had moved back from the town where I was living and where I had gone to high school. I'd mm-hmm. moved back to where my parents were living. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd come home from the movies and have to step over several bodies. We were living in a in a two-bedroom house, mm. 12 of us. Mm. Well, plus my parents, that's 14. Yeah. And a, grand, a grandmother, that's 15. We're living in a two-bedroom house. And I would have to come back, and there were kids sleeping on the floor, and I had a little single bed in the mm. living room. Mm. And that made an indelible impression on me. And it said something to me about being poor. Yeah. And um, and there were other things related to that particular set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. The quantity of food that was available, when it was available, uh, very early figuring out that we were constantly short of money. Mm. And I think that leaves an indelible impression yeah. on, my, on, on a mind yeah. and certainly left an indelible impression on my mind. Mm. Yeah. So what did you do after you graduated from high school? Well... Uh, <laughs> I worked for a company called Burns Philp, uh-huh. which is a which is a chain in the Pacific Islands. Mm-hmm. It's known by its uh, abbreviation. Yeah. What did BP. You, what did you? Oh, BPs. It BP Burns Philp. Oh, it's not and British so, Petroleum. Huh? It's not. No, British. no. That, no, it's it. They they were merchandising. Uh, they're not British Petroleum. Oh, okay. They they did merchandising. They they were importers and exporters. Okay. They uh, they. Um, uh, brought in most of the stuff that we ate in Fiji. Gotcha. Uh, and there was another competing company, um, both of them uh, of Australian origin. Uh-huh. And I worked for them as a, as a, uh, as a, well, as some kind of a, some kind of a clerk. Okay. And um, that ended very abruptly one day when a white woman said that I should bring her her morning tea. And I said, uh-uh. I don't bring you your morning tea. It's not yeah. my job description. Yeah. And the next week I got fired. So it taught me a lesson. Huh. Then what did you do? Well, then I headed back to the town where I had gone to high school, mm-hmm. the capital, Suva. And I applied for a job there at another Australian company called WR Carpenter and Company. Mm-hmm. 
and um, they hired me. Yeah. Uh, obviously, they didn't check with BPs, right. and so they hired me, and that was a great job because within three years, I'd written, risen to the the top of the department. Okay. And I uh, I was a shipping clerk, and I learned enormous amount about shipping. Uh-huh. And I worked on the waterfront. Yeah. Uh, I was a paper pusher, but in the shipping department. Gotcha. So that was a great job. And then I, I quit that job uh-huh. after three or four years because I wasn't getting paid enough. And I went back, strangely enough, and worked for BPs. To BP. Yeah. So but in town, yeah. in Suva. Okay. Yeah. Different, different location. Well, obviously, somebody wasn't, one branch wasn't talking to the other. Yeah, see. So, so I went back and worked there. Well, back then, I think, I think uh, before, before the internet and, and before communications oh. were what they are now, uh, you could kind of hide, <laughs> hide and hide, hide, hide out. And or it was an example of plain incompetence, that's all. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Uh, one would think that companies like that, if they were politically sensitive to some extent, mm-hmm. And I don't think they were too politically sensitive to that extent, but there were some people who were keeping an eye on political developments mm-hmm. that uh, they would have taken note of the fact that I had shown an unusual streak of independence mm. by refusing to um, make a cup of tea for the white lady who was working in an adjacent yeah. department. Yeah. And, you know, streaks of independence in British colonies are always noted uh-huh. for one reason or another. Yeah. Because streaks of independence eventually mean trouble for the regime. Right. But they were not checking all that well. I went back and worked for Burnsville. Would you, would you say you were lucky in that sense? Yeah, I was somewhat lucky in the sense that I still had a job. Uh-huh. And uh, because um, by then I had married and I had, I think the second child was on its way. And so having a job was was important because it helped me pay the bills and yeah. all of that provide stuff. for your yep. growing your young family right yeah yeah so um as i've as we've talked a little bit about your life before sitting down like this um, it seems like one of the first kind of pivotal um events in your career was the oil workers' strike correct in 1957? 59. 59. Okay, so how did you go from uh, working for an import-export company to becoming a leader in a, a general strike in yeah. Fiji? Well, as I as you pose that question now, well, you know, 59 is uh, close to 60 years ago. Um, <clears throat> It happened very seamlessly. Mm-hmm. Uh, while I was working for BPs, I made overtures to the um, to the waterside workers union. These are the people who load and <coughs> unload ships, mm-hmm. and um, I thought it would be fun to to um, well, not so much fun. I thought I could do some real damage if I got into that union and somehow ran it. That was completely, um, that was completely uh, a figment of my imagination. It was mm-hmm. something that never went anywhere, that plan. Mm-hmm. Um, so I began trying to organize the unions, I mean the workers who were working for companies like BPs and WR Carpenters, and there was another company called MHs, Morris mm-hmm. Headstrom. Mm-hmm. Uh, these were commercial workers. Yeah. And so they did things like drive trucks, uh, stack shelves, uh, unload um, 
unrolled stuff that had come in on a ship, put it in the stacks. Uh-huh. Uh, and even at that time, they there were people who worked in warehouses who who drove, um, um, you know, those machines that that lift stuff and put them in one, take them from one place to another. Forklift. So, hmm? Forklift. Forklifts. That's what they are. <laughs> so. I was in, I thought, well, you know, I'm in this industry, and there's a large number of people here, uh-huh. and I wanted to, I wanted to um, organize them. Yeah. Okay. Now. Why? Well, I had formed the opinion that if you became a member of the union, and I can tell you how that happened. Yeah. Um, that if you became a, a a member of a union, that somehow or the other you could you could. Um, Improve your working conditions, mm-hmm. and at the same time pr- uh, provide collective security through the solidarity that would arise from your being a member of a union. Mm-hmm. And I had learned this from when I was working for carpenters. One of the things that I was responsible for is clearing ships that came in and out of Fiji, yeah. carrying different kinds of cargo. And there mm-hmm. were two classes of ships. One was the ones that came regularly and replenished the shelves of supermarkets. Yeah. And the second class was ships that came in to pick up sugar and molasses and take that out of Fiji. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of experience in dealing with that. Okay. And while I was working on the waterfront, mm-hmm. I met a number of, of union members who were, who were members of some of the most militant unions in Australia, mm-hmm. the Siemens Union and the Waterside Workers Union. Mm-hmm. And I used to talk to these people, and they were kind of interested in me because I was curious about some of the things that their lives were very intimately associated with, yeah. namely the good working conditions that they had yeah. and how they had gotten there. So I had learned a lot from them, mm. and hence my interest in transferring that knowledge into doing the same kind of thing in Fiji. That makes so sense. Yeah. We, um, I, I began organizing what eventually became the Wholesale and Retail Workers General U- Union, mm-hmm. and finally got it registered. That was an enormous battle with wow. the colonial bureaucracy. Yeah. They didn't want us to register as a general workers' union. I bet. Because then, if we had a general workers' union, the net that we would throw into the ocean of organizable workers uh, would be huge yeah. compared with restricting us to this so-called industry. Yeah. So um, Too much I, power. I, yeah, from the standpoint of practicality, yeah, it seemed like I needed to get at least one foot in the door before I could get both feet under the bargaining table. Mm-hmm. So I said, "Fine, you know, we'll take registration as a wholesale and retail workers general union." Okay, and um, I organized that for a short while, mm-hmm. and then BPs found out that I was the guy who was trying to organize their workers oh. and their compatriots' workers. That is, people in WR Carpenters and. Millers and MHs and so on. And so I remember the occasion as clearly today as when it occurred just sometime around 1958, maybe 57. The um, cigar-chomping, smoking um, manager of BPs, a guy called Maurice Helson, French in origin, Mm -hmm. he summoned me to his office one afternoon. I'd come back from work and they said, oh, the boss wants to see you mm-hmm. and everybody kind of looked at me like oh jesus you know you're, you're in you're for it. Whole, the whole bunch of shit yeah. so i went and saw him and he said he said you don't even have to sit down he said you're fired 
And I said, oh? And he said, you don't even have to go back to the office to pick up your things. We'll mail them to you. And I said, okay. And so I got fired. And if I wasn't really determined before this event yeah. that I was going to organize this company and mm -hmm. the unions, yeah. I became very determined at that point that I was going to teach this guy a lesson. Yeah. And later in this interview, I, I will tell you how that happened. Okay. So anyway, I began organizing a section of the workers that we were entitled to organize. Got it. And I deliberately selected the two oil companies. Mm -hmm. That oil companies meaning companies that imported gasoline yeah. and related petroleum products. Mm -hmm and who were involved in the distribution and redistribution, a key industry. Yeah. And there were only about 200 uh, possible workers that we could organize. Mm -hmm. But there was some, something that happened in my brain that told me that if I could organize these guys, oh, you could. and it would give me, a, in the language that I have learned since that time, mm -hmm. It would give me an enormous amount of leverage yeah. in order to at least bring these companies uh, to the bargaining table. Mm -hmm. And I perceived this in, in, in war terms that I was going to have, a, even though I was 56, I was 21, 22, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. And I had worked it out very clearly. I recollect that now with a great deal of precision, mm. that I had worked out that this was a vulnerable industry, mm -hmm. that I would have a lot of leverage if I could organize these people. Mm -hmm. And one thing led to another. I spent probably a year uh, without pay. Uh, as the general secretary of this union, mm -hmm. I organized something like 180 out of the 200 members yeah. signed up membership in the union and wow. an American audience has to remember that at this time and still yet, Fiji does not have a uh, NLRB election system mm -hmm. in order to determine whether a union is going to be eligible to have what's called um, collective bargaining status representing mm -hmm. workers. Mm -hmm. So I wrote to, I wrote to, interestingly enough, I wrote to Helson the guy who had fired me, yeah. including a number of his counterparts uh -huh. in these other companies, mm -hmm. and said, we are the Wholesale and Retail Workers General Union. I represent them as the general secretary. We are submitting this log of claims to you. That's an Australian term. We set out the things that we wanted, and we said, uh, we invite you to meet with us to discuss this log of claims. And... Uh, I think they were a little bit stunned by this development. They'd never heard of a log of claims before, probably. It had never happened before? Nope. And I think this was submitted, I forget the exact date. Mm -hmm. This was submitted to them um, probably about, about March or April mm -hmm. of 1959 now. Yeah. And uh, basically what they told me, uh, what they said was... Uh, well, first of all, they didn't even acknowledge receipt of the log of claims and the covering letter. Mm -hmm. And then after a little bit more prodding, uh, they said that, uh, they said they were, the British term is they were fopping me off. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one thing led to another without getting bogged down in the, in the honest in details, the details of all yeah. of this. Yeah. We got close to the end of the year. And I was not prepared to wait until the new year. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, I eventually served them with a final notice saying, if you do not sit and negotiate with us, we will call a strike at a time of our choosing. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, what I had planned was that well, of course, we had a committee, and we met very quietly. And what I told them was that, uh, that um, and all of the committee members were sort of my, my dad's age. That is, they were two times my age. Yeah, yeah. And I said, look, uh, the only way we're going to get this done is that um, if they don't come to the bargaining table, we're going to call a strike, mm -hmm. and uh, this is what we're going to do. And they looked at me like, oh, wait a minute, uh, how are we going to do this? I said... I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to get it done. And so... Um, and you'd never actually seen this done in real life nope, before. I'd never seen it before. Had you read about it? I, I had never read about it. It was how, just... How did you... Who was... Was anyone like, telling you how to do it? Well, now I can tell you what... Uh, the, the, the explanation I can offer you. I mm -hmm. didn't know it then, but I know it now. It's this mysterious voice that comes to anyone... Uh, who is either involved in a writing project, particularly writing, I think, mm -hmm. or in a some kind of a project of this nature where yeah. you're organizing people and you're going to do something. Yeah. And uh, I think the conventional expression that we use now is that the, a muse is speaking to you. Uh -huh. It's a voice from somewhere. Yeah. And uh, so um, I was working this out as I was moving along. Yeah. And so... They didn't, the, the companies just ignored me. Uh -huh. And we were actually supposed to go on strike on the, uh, on the uh, let me see, the 6th, the 5th, the 4th of December. Because that was the day that the ship, the Rona, uh, which is a colonial sugar refining company ship, mm -hmm. that was by far and away the biggest of the monstrous companies in Fiji. They controlled sugar, yeah. Australian company. Right. Because that ship was going to dock that day, and mm -hmm. I hadn't even cleared it with the with the union representatives. But what I thought I was going to do is go down to the waterfront when they docked and said, "Hey, we're on strike. You don't cross our picket lines, okay?" And that was very naive. But anyway, a strange thing happened. Um, I went to the union office. I'd been very, I was very tired, mm -hmm. and I went to the union office and I lay down on the floor, take a nap. And the ship was supposed to come in at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And I slept through that. And by the time I woke up, it was 5 o'clock. Yeah. And when I went down to the, went down to the waterfront, they had already docked. Mm -hmm. And they were already discharging petroleum products. Yeah. And so I thought, well, there's no point in my going to make a fool of myself by telling them that I had slept through what I thought was going to be the time when the strike was going to uh, start yeah, happened. So I I called everyone up who was in our network and said, you know, we're going to put this off until Monday. Mm -hmm. And um, so we went on strike on Monday, the seventh of December. I didn't even know that was the, that was the date on which the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor. Interesting. So there's no Just coincidence. Not completely, you know, no clues about what was happening yeah. in the rest of the yeah. world. 
And so we went on strike on the 7th of December 19th. with 13 and 11 pence in the bank. That's about a dollar and 50 cents. Wow. Yep. 1959. 59, 7th of December. Yeah. And we shut the place down. Immediately the strike was effective. Yeah. That we shut the place down and they began. No petroleum could be delivered to anyone. The picket lines were holding. Just... Uh, and uh, it was, for me, in my life, a moment of, of great excitement Yeah, at, uh, that this had worked out like clockwork. I bet. I mean, the adrenaline you must have been feeling yep. at that time was exactly. probably unbelievable. Lots of adrenaline. Yeah. It was at a time when I couldn't even spell adrenaline. Yeah. But anyway, uh, we also locked down Nandi International Airport uh -huh. because we had members there and a colleague mm -hmm. of mine whom I will be seeing on this, this trip to Fiji. Yeah. Uh, he was supposed to be the guy who, who, who was going to manage the strike on that end. Yeah. And our expectation was that if we could close down Nandi International Airport and no flights coming in there could, could uh, refuel, yes. then that would become an international incident that would warrant the international press flying in. Mm -hmm. I don't know where the hell I got that idea from, but it was my idea. Yeah. And as it happened, the strike was broken on that side. And it was the strike in Suva, uh, where there were more workers and more outlets, that the whole industrial capacity of the city was, began to close down very quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean, by the end of the day, it was very apparent that this strike was not going to be settled quickly and that it was having an enormous impact. And so public transport couldn't move because they couldn't get any gas. Right. Taxis couldn't move. Uh -huh. Private cars couldn't move. Yeah. And by Tuesday, <coughs> the the city was pretty much paralyzed. Huh. So and it happened very quickly. Um, what what were what was the union? What what were the workers asking for? What were you seeking in, okay. in this? Because yeah. I mean, really dramatic measures to go to shut down. Well, they went. That I mean, yeah. the, the effect was dramatic, but yeah. what we were asking for, in my opinion, then and still now, mm -hmm. uh, was we weren't asking for anything that was particularly dramatic. The minimum wage at that time was, uh, was uh, we were still using uh, British currency then, was three pounds and six pence. Mm -hmm. That's about, roughly, about six bucks a week, mm -hmm. American, at that time, mm -hmm. 59. And so... Um, uh, we were asking for six pounds. Don't ask me where I got that figure from. Um, it was a dumb figure now that I look round, back on round it. Round number. It was a round number, and it yeah. was two times Twice. three pounds and sixpence. Yeah. And the critical thing about three pounds and sixpence, and this became the critical issue, mm -hmm. is that the three pounds and sixpence was the amount of money uh, as a sort of unofficial minimum wage mm -hmm. that the government had set as a result of its collective bargaining with its employees. And those were mostly people who worked for the Public Works Department. Mm -hmm. The Public Works Department for the government was a big pool of workers. Yeah. And they had a right-wing union led by an Indian guy. And um, they were what the British called a responsible union. And the last thing in the world that I wanted to be was to be associated with a responsible union. Why? Uh, you know, responsible unions normally sell their members out. Okay. And I had that very clearly in my head. Okay. Nobody told me about that. I just put it together. Yeah. You know, if this is an example of a, 
of a responsible union and yeah. all they can negotiate is yeah. three pounds and sixpence yeah. for their workers, yeah. there's something fundamentally wrong with this. So responsible union was a bit of a euphemism. Well, the bad euphemism yeah. for me, yeah. yeah. I wasn't yeah. about to be tagged as a responsible union yeah. uh, leader. So we asked for six pounds. Mm -hmm. We asked for what's called margins for skill. That is, if you're a <coughs> if you're an ordinary laborer, you know, you get the minimum. But if you're a welder, you get considerably more than the minimum. And if you're a <coughs> truck driver, you know, you get some kind of margin for that mm -hmm. because it's more complicated and so mm -hmm. on. It's a very ordinary, standard kind of term. Mm -hmm. And so, by the way, that term is also borrowed from the um, Australian Union handbook, quote-unquote handbook. Mm -hmm. And there was payment for public holidays and overtime, okay. uh, all of that kind of stuff. So <clears throat> the things that you were going to kind of great extremes right. for were what most people today would consider pretty basic. Yeah, yeah. pretty basic. Yep. Pretty basic. Yep. Yeah. So that was 59. That was 50. Well, not quite, because there's a, you know, a couple of dangling ends to this story. Okay. That by Tuesday, the city is being paralyzed. There's trouble on the western side. Because even though Nandi Airport has not been closed down, mm -hmm. uh, then even at that, even at that time, the wire services were carrying this story about this paralyzing strike, yeah. and uh, there's this young guy, you know, running around Suva, and he's the linchpin of this movement. Twenty-four years old. Twenty-four years old, yeah. and so um, on Wednesday, the seventh of December, mm -hmm. and I'm sorry, the 9th of December, I yeah. set up this this uh, public meeting mm -hmm. because because the government was trying to the government was trying to uh, break the strike mm -hmm. by procuring scabs yeah and they were using what's called special constables to do this and um, so i decided that i wasn't going to put up with this nonsense either so i called a public meeting mm -hmm. uh, and I and I called it at a very strategic place because that's a vortex through which all of the workers coming from the industrial area mm -hmm. walk towards the bus stand where they get, pick up their buses to get home mm -hmm. and so uh, you have to have a permit to hold a public meeting in Fiji still yet and so um by the time it was four o'clock, there was so much excitement in town mm -hmm. that even government employees were told to go home yeah. because there was a mounting sense of excitement. And there's, wherever you have excitement in a colony, the colonial authorities always think in terms of violence. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the proverbial, uh, the proverbial um, breakdown of law and order. Yeah. And so... By the time, the police were trying to get a hold of me all of that day, and mm -hmm. I was deliberately avoiding them yeah. because I knew I had heard from my sources in the police department mm -hmm. that they wanted to serve me with a notice that they were not going to give me permission to arrange this meeting. Yeah. And so I consulted our lawyers, and our lawyers said that I should try and do everything legally possible not to be served with that notice. And we are very successful at doing that. And so when I got there, the meeting was called for 5 o'clock. And by the time I got there, there were 20,000 people assembled um, 
uh, straddling this the main road that goes into the industrial area and takes people out of town. 20,000 people. 20,000 people that gathered there waiting to hear me speak. Wow. And so there was a line of policemen. This is straight out of the colonial textbook. Yeah. Um, holding batons and, uh, and they were, had gas masks on. Yeah. That means they were, had tear gas. And they were all standing there. And when I got there, um, this is in front, interestingly enough, it's in front of a theater called the Phoenix Theater. And, uh, Fitting name. Huh? Yeah, local movie house. Yeah. So anyway, um, this guy called Alan Mersh, I still remember his name, uh-huh. a colonial policeman who had served in India and whom I did not like. And I made it very clear that I didn't like him. Yeah. And um, there was a whole bunch of his white colleagues They were lined up there. And the guy walked up to me and he says, oh, Mr. Anthony, you know, we've been trying to contact you all day. And I said, look, um, don't tell me your problems. Uh, what, I, I have nothing to talk to you about. Yeah. I'm here to address a meeting and I intend to address the meeting. Yeah. And he said, well, uh, you don't have permission and you will be breaking the law. And he said, why don't you tell these people to go home? Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, oh, no, that's your job. You tell them to go home. And he started foolishly. I mean, basically, these guys are dumb, these colonial police officers. Mm-hmm. And so he started to say something in a microphone, like, go home. And the crowd just went berserk. Yeah. And they started to throw rocks. And the police started to fire tear gas. And that whole crowd of 20,000 people, Turn. they just went berserk. Yeah. And they ripped up rocks from all over the place and threw it at the police. And as the police retreated, they were encouraged by the retreat and the whole crowd moved uptown and they tore the city apart. Jeez. And somebody, matter of fact, I I just remember the other day who it was that picked me up. I got a whiff of tear gas. They picked me up and took me to an Indian guy, Mm -hmm. leader, who was then in what was called the Legislative Council. He wanted to talk to me. And the stupid guy says to me when I got there, he said, well, what do you want? And I showed him the log of claims. And I said, this is what we want. And he said, well, is there room for compromise? And I said, no, there's no room for compromise, not now. And I I remember the feeling today, you know, 60 years ago, that when the police started firing tear gas and when this jerk, um, Alan Mersh, uh, started to tell them tell the people that they had to, you know, disperse. Go home. And once I heard the roar of this crowd, I knew we had this one. I still remember that feeling. And from there onwards, the only thing that was at issue now was whether the companies would come to the bargaining table, Mm -hmm. and they did. Wow, victory. Mm -hmm. And Helson's office, by the way, that building that I used to work in, including his office, There's a whole bunch of people who went in there and tore that place apart. They were about to set it on fire. And they, some of them came to see me about it. And I said, no, don't set it on fire. But, you know, whatever you want to do, go ahead and do it. You're not taking instructions from me. Yeah. Uh, because always in these circumstances, there's an Asian provocateur mm-hmm. who may be in amongst the people who are yeah. doing this stuff. Yeah. And I didn't want trouble from that source, but they did tear the place apart, including that store. As a matter of fact, there's a humorous edge to this. A whole bunch of Fijians, basically unemployed, lumpen proletariat, they broke into the liquor department and they 
took uh, boxes of liquor up until the top floor. I think the top floor was the fourth floor. Uh-huh. And they had a party there all night. It was sort of amusing. But anyway, that's what happened. Yeah. yeah. So we were at the end of the... And then we went to arbitration, and I can tell you what happened at arbitration. Yeah. yeah. What, what happened there? Well, went to arbitration. Uh, they, appointed, uh, they appointed three people. We selected one arbitrator. Mm-hmm. was a distinguished... Uh, Muslim lawyer, a guy called Said Hassan, yeah. very good man. They appointed a guy called DMN McFarlane, white guy, lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then those two got together and they appointed a third guy, a guy called Mara, who was the former Prime Minister of Fiji, dead now. He went to the same high school I went to. Yeah. And they heard the case. I represent the unions. Uh, I'd gone to our representative on the on the uh, arbitration panel and uh-huh. I said do you think we need a lawyer he said no lawyers are a nuisance you present the case you know this case better than any other lawyer yeah and so we went to arbitration I think it went on for two weeks mm-hmm. and it should really have gone on for three days because it was an open and shut case yeah and uh, <clears throat> the we go back now to the public works department um, uh, minimum wage because that becomes enormously important in this whole thing right. and it's called parity it's the parity issue mm-hmm. that is minimum wages in Fiji were tied to what the government could pay or said it could pay um, and it completely ignored that private enterprise is not the government and that there's no law made in heaven or hell or anywhere else mm-hmm. that says that minimum wages should be tied to what government can pay. Right. And my argument was that, my argument was that um, you may have done this for all of these years and gotten away with it, yeah. but uh, this is the end of the line. Right. We're not accepting parity anymore. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so one arbitrator, the public works department in a, in a, Deliberate dirty move was in negotiations with the with the government, and so before we went to arbitration, they 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 set the thing up. The public works department accepted a 17 shillings a, a week increase. So the minimum wage went from three pounds and sixpence to three pounds seventeen, and I saw that coming. And, you know, it was designed to undercut us, and it was designed, above all else, it was designed to upset parity. Yeah. And so McFarlane predictably awarded £3.17. Mm-hmm. We're back at parity. Mm-hmm. Said Hassan, our arbitrator, he awarded £5.10, 10 shillings short of the £6 we had asked for. Yeah. Um, and Mara the Fijian chief. He slit the throat of his own people and award, he split the difference between £3.17 and, and uh, £5.10 yeah. right down the middle to the penny and he awarded £4.11 and 4 So, you know, I, I, I have been bitter about that for the last 50 years and mm. I'm still bitter about it. Yeah. And I lost my respect for that guy. When I, after I got a PhD, he offered me a job and I said no. I wouldn't work under him. Yeah, and so um, I mean, it was a fifty-two percent increase in the minimum wage, mm-hmm. but as you know, percentages are always illusory in a sense. But we did get 
a whole bundle of other things. We got margins for skills, so that principle is established. Yeah. We got overtime pay, yeah. so that was established. Uh-huh. We got paid public holidays, uh-huh. that was established. We yeah. got paid annual vacations. Mm-hmm. So the basically the the basket of demands that we made were overwhelmingly recognized, not only in principle but also in substance. Yeah. And so uh, that becomes the model as we go on into the future mm-hmm. for negotiations to, well, discussions about wages and improved conditions and so on. Yeah. But looking back now and know where the country is now 50, 60 years later, uh, the union movement has stalled and it has stalled largely because of a failure of leadership. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, you know, if I can toot my own horn here a little bit, uh, in all of this, in my academic writings and in my reflections on political events and so on, uh, leadership is often the determining factor. Mm-hmm. Leadership means the bundle of values and orientations and mm-hmm. ideological predispositions yeah. that someone has in order to in order to move a particular social movement yeah. forward. So, so you're that's, that's where we are. Leadership matters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I don't think there's any dispute about that. Right. And that is one of the one of the big problems in you know large parts of the third world. It's certainly still a big problem in Fiji, <clears throat> and that is uh, it's a problem that generates the interventionist impulse mm-hmm. in 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 American foreign policy and foreign policy of you know America allied yeah. countries mm-hmm. that. If you have a if you have a Fidel Castro and a and a Che mm-hmm. in charge of a country, yeah. they are definitely anathema to your interests. Mm-hmm. And so, in order to change course, you have to replace them. And these are the seeds of regime change. Yeah, and it's the same thing in Fiji. If I had stayed in Fiji, um, you know, no matter no matter how much uh, higher education I would have gotten, uh, on reflection now. Um, I uh, I would say that I'm I'm not the kind of leopard whose spots would change. Right. And so therefore, I would have stuck out and probably have continued to be undercut in the way we were undercut way back in 1959. Uh-huh. So, you know the outcome. Uh, you know you started with an idea, a vision. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't really have. A, a well-developed blueprint for how to do it. Nope. You figured it out as you went along. That's right. Um, you know, this is... Well... And, well, you, you brought your vision to be in the world. And it, it made a difference for mm-hmm. a lot of people through that society that you lived in. Yeah, I can, I can insert a footnote in there because yeah. it's relevant. I did not realize how important the 1959 strike was at the time. I was in the middle of it, and so when you're in the middle of the forest, you tend not to know, mm-hmm. see, you know, everything around me. Yeah. But you know that forest and trees metaphor mm-hmm. is an abbreviated one. Uh, it's not only forest and trees that are important; stumps are also important. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> now that I look back on it, mm-hmm. and now that more information has come to light. For example, we now know from British colonial secret files, what's called the Red File, that at that moment when the strike occurred 
and the disturbances followed. Mm -hmm. And they had this Royal Commission of Inquiry. It wasn't a Royal Commission. It was the Chief Justice of Fiji in New Zealand, an extraordinarily stupid man, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, completely insensitive, ignorant, unaware of the world around him, but mm -hmm. all of that aside. <clears throat> the British said, pretty much, within six months, they said, we're getting out of Fiji. Mm -hmm. And there was no nationalist movement in Fiji. Mm -hmm demanding independence as had occurred in other British colonies. Mm -hmm. But the rot had already set in. This is 1959. Yeah. And one of the significant things about 1959, now that I look back on it and read a lot of the professional literature, mm -hmm. 1959, 58, 59, 60, 61, that whole period, is a period during which the British Commonwealth is under siege. Kiku, the Mau Mau movement in Kenya had broken uh -huh. open. Huge problem for the British. Yeah. The British said, uh, I think within the year, British said, we're getting out of here. They assembled all of the political leaders, and they said, you prepare for independence. It's not whether you want it or not, but we are getting out. Hmm. And they got out. Hmm. So that was the trigger that led to independence in 1970 hmm. without a nationalist movement. They literally had to drag the Fijian chiefs to accept the principle that they're going to have to run their own country. Wow. And the Indians, Indians went along. Uh, well, they, they rode this bandwagon. And, uh, they, you know, the leaders, some of the leaders of the Indian community wanted me to come back and wanted me to be part of this movement and so on. And I said no. Hmm. <clears throat> so anyway, that's an aside. Yeah. But it led to independence. The, that strike is enormously important. And I only came to recognize this, you know, after I'd come to the University of Hawaii and uh, did a lot more reading. And um, it's not so much the degrees that you earn. Mm -hmm. It's how you, how you, it's um, someone who was the guest speaker at a Phi Beta Kappa meeting years ago said, he says, you know, Phi Beta Kappa is about the care and feeding of genius. Mm -hmm. And that was my education. Mm -hmm. I, I took, I cared for, and um, I cared for and uh, nurtured my own genius. Mm -hmm. um, there were a few good teachers that I had here, but I had enormous opportunities to learn, and I was sufficiently intellectually curious that I took advantage of being, even a tin pot place like this. I mean, this is a very small stage. Mm -hmm. And so, but, um, you know, after a considerable amount of mind sharpening, I realized the, the enormous significance of this event. Yeah. Wow. It takes, me to, it takes us to 59. Yeah. And then uh, uh, it took me a while to decide that I should, I should write about it, and I have. Yeah. And because it was... <clears throat> This story really belongs to the people of Fiji. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> I wasn't really all that interested in having this, this piece that I wrote. It was mm -hmm. lengthy, 60 pages or so, uh, published in an academic journal. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's certainly a lot more for me if it had been published in an academic journal. I decided to have it published in the, one of the daily newspapers in Fiji. And they ran it, to their credit, they ran it in a seven or eight part series wow. How was every it received? day for eight years. How for was eight, it received? Huh? How was it received? Enormous uh, curiosity. Yeah. The paper sales went through the roof and hmm. um, you know, I didn't get paid for it or yeah. anything. Yeah. But that was the proper use to which this story yeah. uh, should have been put. And in the meantime, 
and this says this says what I have often said about outside academics. There are a number of academics who had written about this event, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> not one of them had cared to even interview me. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And what they wrote was basically, um, basically, uh, even by academic standards, um, fairly poor stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's a problem that third world people have to put up with all the time. Mm-hmm. It's what I call the falsification of history. Yeah. Because by s- selectivity, yep. <coughs> the events of history that are recorded by these people Yep. is such that it amounts to a falsification of history. And we've gone through that. Yeah. And we know about that already. Mm-hmm. And so, and now this is more widely recognized. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's 59. So I get a scholarship and I come up here. And that brings me up here in 1961 after the arbitration award. <laughs> Somebody wanted to get you out of Fiji. Oh, yeah. The, the, <laughs> there is a letter, in fact, that I, I had a copy of. It must be lurking somewhere in my yeah. files. The easiest way to neutralize leaders is yeah, to the actual, the university. The, the, <laughs> the acting governor of Fiji at the time, when he heard that I was applying for this scholarship at yeah. the East Coast Center, yeah. he wrote a fairly elegant letter uh, basically saying that there is no question that you know, this guy is going to be important. Yeah. And, you know, you've got to give him an education. And what better education than an American education? Mm-hmm. And so they unloaded me onto the Americans. Yeah. And I get interviewed in an amusing aside here. Yeah. I get in, interviewed by the American consul in, in Fiji. Mm-hmm. And he says, oh, Texan, I think. And he says, oh, you've done some interesting things and I said yeah to say the least yeah and then he told me almost verbatim of a meeting that I had had in Auckland New Zealand when I had done a run job on that ship that I was telling you about Mm -hmm. this is before the strike and I had had a meeting with a guy who was apparently a member of the communist party in in Auckland and we'd been meeting at a a bar called at a pub Mm -hmm. called the Shakespeare Inn Mm -hmm. And he told me almost verbatim what we talked about. And I said, hey, good job. And then he said, well, he said, you know, we'll give you a visa because the government is very supportive of your candidacy. And so he said that I had to swear an oath to the effect that when I got to the United States, I would make no attempt to overthrow the government by force or violence. And I said, yes, sir. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know... This is the kind of nonsense that people put up with. Yeah. And so I came here in 61. Yeah. And uh, Went to school. Did yeah, you, I did an undergraduate degree in three years and a master's degree two years later. In what and subjects? I, uh, political science. Political science. I, I didn't have anywhere else to go. Yeah. You know, at first I thought, well, maybe I should go to do a degree in industrial relations. And I went to the industrial relations department mm-hmm. here, at that time run by a guy called Roberts. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, my God, I've heard this rant before. You know, I went to talk to him. Yeah. And uh, I was 26 years old at this time. But I had a lot of savvy because I'd gotten my education sort of ass backwards. Mm-hmm. You know, here I am, 24 years old, running a major strike. Yeah, with a lot sitting of real-world experience. lawyers and, yeah. you know, beating down the doors and telling them to piss off and so on. And here now you have me at 26 talking to this guy at 
the University of Hawaii. And I listen to him and I think, oh my God, you know, this guy's a right wing. He comes at the he comes at the the matter of industrial relations from a right wing perspective. Mm-hmm. I decided no, didn't want to do that. You know, it was a a uh, um, carefully modulated discussion. Mm-hmm. And I looked around and I thought, well, you know, there's this mysterious thing called political science. You know, maybe I'll find a home there. And I had read a fair amount of political philosophy before I came up. And I understood about 15% of it Mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I went into political science. Mm -hmm. So I graduated at the top of my class after three years. Um, I got the gold medal award from the Easter Center for the outstanding graduating senior at the time. Mm-hmm. I don't think they were very happy, but it was a student body decision rather than administrative decision. And then I got a teaching assistantship mm-hmm. that saw me through an MA. And uh, I wrote a very controversial master's uh, thesis mm-hmm. called Guerrilla Warfare, Guerrilla Warfare and Political Change. I mm-hmm. um, just resurrected it the other day. Mm-hmm. And uh, then... You know, I didn't have anything to do. <laughs> and so I had a field trip owing to me. Mm-hmm. And I went to the University of Michigan, because mm-hmm. Ann Arbor, mm-hmm. because at that time, Ann Arbor was the place to go to to learn about the use of quantitative methods mm-hmm. in political science. Mm-hmm. At that time, it was called the Behavioral Persuasion Political Science. Mm-hmm. And I went there, and mostly what they were doing was election studies. Uh, factor na- analytic techniques and so on. So I looked at that and I decided I didn't want to have any part of that, you know, for other people. Mm-hmm. And then I went to I went to the Harvard campus to use their library because mm-hmm. I think I'm getting my dates sort of mixed up here, but I was still working on this guerrilla warfare and political change mm-hmm. because the case study that I was going to use for the thesis was Mau Mau as an example of an unsuccessful guerrilla war. Unsuccessful from a military standpoint, but not from a political standpoint. And I took a course at um, the University of Michigan Mm -hmm. while I was there. And um, the guy I took a course was teaching a course on African politics. And he said, why are you taking this course? And I said, well... I'm taking this course because I'm writing a thesis on Mau Mau. And he looked at me and he said, really? And I said, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, can you, do you have an outline or something? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I've written five chapters already. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> so he took a look at it. This is, this is the fourth chapter. It just happens to be sitting here, this one. Mm-hmm. It's a theoretical framework. And he looked at it and he said, I can offer you a PhD research fellowship at my university or someplace, I don't know, some crazy place like Indiana. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, that's very kind. But, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think that I'm ready to do that and I'd like to think about it. Mm-hmm. And so I went off to Harvard mm-hmm. to look at the, to use the library. They had a great African uh, collection. Widener Library? Huh? The Widener Library? I, I guess so. Yeah, yeah the, the, the main the, one. The big, yeah, the big university one. library. Yeah. So I... Uh, I got some use, useful material enough so that I could mm-hmm. write, finish off the thesis. Mm-hmm. So I came back to Hawaii, and, but no, just before I left Harvard, before we left Boston, 
I was traveling with my then wife and my son Jimmy, who's now a lawyer in Oakland. Mm-hmm. And uh, I get this cable. In those days, they were still using cables. And the cable was from a friend of mine, New Zealander, mm-hmm. uh, um, a Holly guy. Yeah. Looks like you. Uh, big red beard and so on. Okay, I yeah. feel sorry for him then. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> anyway, he said, hey, Jim. You know, these guys here, I've talked to them about you, and they really want you to come to Canberra. Yeah. And I thought, oh, Colin. So anyway, uh, one thing led to another. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, they offered me, uh, the Australian National University offered me a scholarship, okay. uh, fellowship mm-hmm. to do a PhD. And there was one condition I had. That I didn't want to fill out any forms. Oh. <laughs> so they said, that's okay. You know? yeah, okay. So that's how I went to ANU. And, and you and didn't even have to fill out a form. No, I figured, <laughs> no. I'd written the point in my life where I wasn't filling out any more forms. So that's how we went to Canberra. Yeah. And then I, uh, they refused. They, they gave me a lot of trouble about going to Papua New Guinea mm-hmm. because I had a known political, political record. Yeah. And besides that, there was some white guy who spotted me at Port Moresby Airport, Papua New Guinea. I'd done a pre-field trip, mm-hmm. which is customary in, at the Australian National University. And the guy wrote a letter to the leader of the, the opposition and the, the, uh, the most right-wing member of the Australian parliament mm-hmm. and said that he had spotted me at Port Moresby Airport and that he wanted, me to, he wanted them to know that I was the most dangerous anti-white political agitator in the whole Pacific, wow. and that I was now highly dangerous, highly educated, and therefore very dangerous. Yeah. And I th- armed and dangerous. Armed, probably armed yeah. and dangerous. I yeah, quoted yeah. it in a paper that intellectually I wrote. armed. Yeah, yeah. I, I've quoted that in a letter that I wrote. And I ended up not going to Papua New Guinea. Hmm. I went to Malaysia and I did research on urban politics mm-hmm. and I wrote up a dissertation in six months, got the PhD and got the hell out. Yeah. And that takes you to, I don't know, 1970. Yeah, so how did you come back to Hawaii after? Well, uh, my, my wife was from Hawaii. I'd married here. Okay. Remarried here. Remarried. And we had one child. Okay. And she had a tenured position here mm. at the university. Okay. And then she... Um, well, we, we wanted to protect the bread basket. It was a matter of practicality. Mm-hmm. So we came back here and uh, after I got the PhD. And then I got involved in a problem. I had a job here as an associate professor. It was my first, uh, first job in academia. And uh, the University of Hawaii broke the contract and I sued them. Mm-hmm. I got a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. And they asked me whether I wanted my job back and I said no, didn't want to work for the University of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And so we hung around here for a while. Mm-hmm. Poor went back to a job. Labor government got elected in 19, forget when it was, 74th. We'd been up here for a couple of years fighting the university and suing them. Um, I get a call from a guy called John Wielden, one of the brightest guys in the Australian Parliament, member of the uh, he was a member of the Senate. And uh, he said he had just been appointed to the to the cabinet, mm-hmm. the, the ministerial portfolio for national compensation mm-hmm. and uh, veterans affairs. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to, 
know whether I would come back to Australia and be his private secretary, and I accepted. Mm. We went back. We went to, went back to Australia. Kids moved the whole family. Cases, huh? yeah, moved the family. Moved the whole family. Books, everything. Went back as permanent resident. Mm. I said I was on coming unless they gave me permanent resident status, and so we went back to Australia. I was I was the member's private secretary. That's where I had the top secret clearance job. Right. Saw all of these papers and stuff. I spent uh, 16, 18 months in that job. <clears throat> Learned a lot. Great job to be in. Wonderful job. I was the only non-white person to occupy the, a mm-hmm. private secretary's mm-hmm. position. <clears throat> a private secretary is a very privileged position because you are a gatekeeper. You control, you control all of the information that comes in and out of a cabinet member's mm-hmm. um, office. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Australia is nothing to sneeze at. It's mm-hmm. a big Western white country. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, on some impulse, I quit that job because things were not working out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another side story. And then besides, we poor had to come back or give up a tenured position. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to give that up. Yeah. And so we came back to Hawaii and then the Australian government fell uh, like two months later. It was an unprecedented intervention by the Governor General over a matter of supply, that mm-hmm. is the budget. Mm-hmm. And so we were lucky to get our butts out of there and got our fares all completely paid for and so on. Mm-hmm. And so we came back to Hawaii and I was actually unemployed. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were looking to buy a place because we had saved a bit of money. Yeah. We were living in Haula down the road. Yeah. And um, Don Watson came by one day and started to talk to me. And I said, well, I don't know, you know. And uh, <clears throat> I listened to what she had to say. And I didn't know a Kuleana piece of property from, you know, a paved over parking lot in, in the center of, Honolulu, and I said, well, no, we got to know each other somewhat, and I was doing other things. How how did she know to look you up? Do you have a reputation at that point? Oh, yeah, I have a huge reputation. There's a whole bunch of people here who know me, Uh and uh, because I'd sued the university when I initially came back, And, and I was involved with a whole bunch of radical Hawaiians who are not that radical after all. Okay. I mean, they were... I completely lost my respect for them, and most of them are dead now. And so, are you are you talking about the the Hawaiian cultural revival? Or yeah, so that was one faction of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were several people who were involved in this program called ethnic studies because I had a split position with them. Mm-hmm. The one that eventually ended up in court. Mm-hmm. And there were a number of people who were associated with that who were members of the Communist Party of Hawaii, mm-hmm. which is sort of a joke, but. Um, they were involved in this so-called quote-unquote struggle. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had a reputation that had been built up. Well, it goes back further than just uh, after I got a PhD and sued the university and so on. Uh, I'm a foundation member, I'm still very proud of it, of the Committee Against the War in Vietnam in Hawaii. I was one of six or seven people who... who (laughs) who organized that okay. and organized a lot of the protests that were that were held here gotcha yeah against uh, you know Johnson's visit and um, 
and uh, the visit of a number of the puppet leaders of the South Vietnamese army, and, and uh, I was constantly under surveillance over that. As a matter of fact, <coughs> one of the interesting things that happened is that when my J visa, which is the visa that I was on, uh, expired on one occasion and had to be removed, mm-hmm. I, the immigration department informed me that I would have to turn up and, and be questioned. And I was interrogated by some kind of investigative officer for six hours. Wow. And then they asked me to sign the, the document that uh, represented what I was supposed to have said in the course of the interviews taken down by, by, a, by a shorthand reporter. And I said, no, I wasn't going to sign it. That I was going to consult with counsel and I'll be seeing them later. And so... Um, I left, and uh, um, you know there are some things that people say to you, um, and you remember them because they happen to be important in one way or another. Mm. I, I was still sit- sitting at this table in one of the in a in a room, and uh, he leaned over to me, and the secretary was still there, and. Uh, I think there was another person in the room. He leaned over to me and he said, you communists are all the same. And I said, is that part of the record? And he was really pissed. And uh, anyway, I said, if you have no further business with me, I'm leaving on the left. And I got on the phone a couple of days later and I realized I was in some kind of trouble here. Mm -hmm. And uh, I called Patsy Mink, who was then the representative from Hawaii, Mm -hmm. left of center slightly. And I said, you know, I think that I'm being picked on because of the position I've taken against the war in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, I just want you to know that, and I hope you can help straighten this out. Yeah. And you know, there are times when the American system really works, mm-hmm. really works. Yeah. And two days later, I get a call from the district director of immigration in Honolulu. Mm-hmm. And he says, Mr. Anthony, I'm afraid that there's been a misunderstanding. Why don't you bring your passport in? and come by and we'll have a chat about this. Mm-hmm. And I went in, sat down, they offered me a cup of coffee, said something in Latin which I didn't understand. They asked me to produce my passport. He took a stamp out of his drawer, stamped my passport, extended my legal stay here for another couple of years, mm-hmm. and said, you're an interesting young man. And we had a chat, and then he said, I'm glad you came down and you handled this well. And I was on my way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, that... Leaves us in, leaves us in. Uh, that's part of background, you know. You asked about background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's part of my yeah, background. Yeah. So I was well known, and so, you know, Don came by and talked some, and I thought, no, you know, I, I've heard these crazy stories before. Is this is this kind of leading up to the 1974 uh, issue? At the no, the, we're we're behind. 1974 is now behind us because. Okay. Uh, 1974, the strike against the Mormon Church. Yeah, how did that, how did that come Jans. up? Yeah. It's 1974. That's before I returned to Australia to take the job okay, so you with were John at, Wielden. You were at BYU. Or not at BYU. You were at University of Hawaii. No, I wasn't at University of Hawaii. I was still suing them. I'd finished suing them. Okay. And I'd gotten my money in settlement and all uh-huh. of that. And I was going back to Australia. Gotcha. Right. So... <clears throat> These five Fijians come to see me, and they've been fired by PCC. And I said, what? You know, what is this? And so, uh, again, 
I don't know where this idea came from, but I, I know American um, American labor law. Mm-hmm. I used to teach it. Mm-hmm. And so there's a provision in the National Labor Relations Act. I think it's Section 8A1C3. Mm-hmm. And that is that prohibits employers from punishing workers to become members of a union. Yeah. So I figured, you know, this is bullshit. You know, these goddamn Fijians, they signed a faulty contract and they brought up here under false pretenses and now these guys want to fire them? Mm-hmm. I'm not pre- prepared to put up with that. Mm-hmm. And so I went down to PCC and I saw this guy. It's amazing. I still remember his name. His name was Hardesty, white guy. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, you're breaking the law. Put these guys back to work. They, they are members of a union. Mm-hmm. I'd formed a union overnight. Put it on a piece of paper. Formed a union. That's all you need to do. Yeah. And they were members of it. And I told them they were members of the union. And this dumb guy then reaffirmed that because they were members of a union, he was certainly not going to take them back. And I said, okay, I'll see you in court. Yeah. But I said, in the meantime, you've got a whole hunch, bunch of trouble on your hands. We're going to picket this place. Yeah. And so we began picketing it, you know, just like that. I organized, and people came from all over the place because of the latent dissatisfaction with the way that the Mormon church and its agents here were conducting themselves. So was it people within uh, within Within Laia and Haula? Now, it's not easy to get Mormons to uh, break from their church. It isn't. So what, what, what was it about this that got, uh, got people to come out and picket? You know, people generally, my experience has been, mm-hmm. they generally have a good nose for something that is unfair and unjust. Uh, I think p- p- Americans broadly, not necessarily a majority of Americans, mm-hmm. but there is sentiment in America for a variety of reasons. It's the American historical experience, the struggle of working people and so on and so forth. There are segments in this country which understand this. Mm-hmm. And so if they, you know, there may be only 10 or 15%, but if they see a situation developing where they think that there's something manifestly unjust and unfair, Mm -hmm. and in a very weird sense, un-American about this, Mm -hmm. you don't treat people like this, those kinds of sentiments. And I think there were people here, you know, in this faraway, most isolated spot on earth, Mm -hmm. in some, you know, mini dump like Lightyear, <clears throat> who felt that since the church had come there and was building all these institutions and this university there and mm-hmm. PCC and so on, mm-hmm. there's something kind of rotten yeah. about some of the things they did. And it was that impulse or that series of interconnected impulses mm-hmm. that made them join the picket line. It wasn't huge. The picket lines were not big. Yeah. But they were eye-catching mm-hmm. because somebody... Somewhere down the line, as this thing began to grow in terms of impulse and so on, and numbers. Mm -hmm. And there was an intervening event that uh, I only found out after the fact, Mm -hmm. that some of those big buses that were transporting uh, people to come to PCC got fired at, I think, by M16 rounds. You're kidding. Yep. And the drivers were shaking in their pants. And of course, they came to see me because I was the guy who was leading. You were the, the organizer, yeah. Okay, and they came to see me, and they said, "You know, we promise never to come back here." And I said, "You're directing your promises to the wrong guy. Uh, you know, you go tell PCC that your life is endangered if that's what you're saying, and you tell them to fix this problem. 
And so there was an extraordinary stubbornness on their part. But somehow or the other, I forget exactly how now, mm-hmm. the mayor got involved, Fossey. Frank Fossey. Yeah, and yeah. he came down and he got involved. And somehow or the other, there was an interim agreement to go to go to um, go back to work. Mm-hmm. Um, they wouldn't take the five Fijians back, but they paid them something, I think, paid them some money. <coughs> but I had this 8A1C3 violation pending, and I had a probably the best labor lawyer in town handling it, and they were doing it pro bono. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was this interim settlement, and I went to pick up my job, take up my job in Australia yeah. for the Australian government. Mm-hmm. And then uh, six months later, I got a call from one of the attorneys that represents the, uh, in-house attorneys that represents the... the um, National Labor Relations Board introduces himself and he said, hey, you know, I'm sorry to have to do this to you, but I'm going to have to subpoena you as a government witness in this case. Okay. If you subpoena me, you know, I'll come. And so they subpoenaed me and I came back to Hawaii and we worked on the case together over Mm -hmm. the weekend. Mm -hmm. He didn't know what this case was about. Yeah. And then there was a hearing before what's called an ALJ, an administrative law judge. Mm-hmm. That's a quasi-judicial hearing in the NLRB system. Mm-hmm. And uh, was it kind of just a closed-room meeting? That, huh? Just kind of a closed-room meeting that. Yeah. And so um, I was there on the stand for three for three days. I remember being interrogated by this attorney called uh, called Jossum. Mm-hmm. And the Mormon Church lost that case. The ALJ said, these are clear violations of 8A1C3, mm-hmm. and they would have to be reinstated, we'll pay, mm-hmm. and they would have to post a notice saying that, they, that they, the law required them to respect the rights of workers if they want to join a union. Yeah. And I was, the one thing that the, the the church and its lawyers did not expect that I would come back to Hawaii under subpoena from the United States federal government. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, there was a lot of bumbling lawyer talk at the hearings. And the judge at one point said, Mr. Jossum, will you please get on with it? You've had this man on the stand for three days. And if you don't have anything useful more to get out of him, uh, you know, you can send him away, and we're going to get on with this yeah, thing. And he yeah. ruled in, against them. And so, um, you know, this, there was one big mistake that I made in 74. Hmm. I should have closed them down, and I had the power to do it then. Mm-hmm. I should have closed PCC down. Why? Huh? Why? Because I believe that PCC is not a good thing. It makes money for the Mormon church, and it debases... Um, debases... Um, debases... Uh, Polynesian cultures, think of it this way. Think if I were to set up, because I had enough money, mm-hmm. a, a, um, a, um, um, a European ha- theme park? Yeah, Hawaii theme park. I mean, oh. a Howley, Howley theme park. And people would come and say, oh, so this is where white people take a shit, mm-hmm. you know? Or this is the bedroom where they fornicate, mm-hmm. or whatever, you know? These are the 
boats that they use to get across the ocean, so pillage other people's properties, so they and cook so on. Food and, okay. I don't think people would take very, uh, very kindly to that. Uh-huh. Um, I think white people would have a justifiable basis on which to say, hey, this is debasing us. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, this is an oversimplification of what goes on at PCC. Yeah. But, you know, PCC takes in an enormous amount of money every year. The last I heard was about $25 million a year. It's nonprofit. <coughs> and it's dishonestly, it's dishonestly sold to the public as a place where that provides opportunities for students to get an education and funds their education and so on. That's not true. Scholarships. The students actually work there. Mm-hmm. And they don't work for union wages, which doesn't sit well with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, But, you know, it's I'm an outsider on this issue. And uh, one of the, one of the, I think, the quote-unquote faults of Polynesians is that they like selling their culture. Mm-hmm. And I say, okay, you know, I understand that too. It provides bread and butter and something of an education. Yeah. So there's another side to this. Mm-hmm. But I... I because of the the because of the um, uh, the um, um, unfortunate interactions that I've had with people who work there. I think the at, the leadership of PCC are mostly racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're arrogant. Mm-hmm. Um, they use their muscle to buy lawyers to be able to allow them to do kinds of things that I think are disreputable. Mm-hmm. And that are fundamentally dishonest, mm-hmm. and I think that the PCC, as it has grown now, and I feared that this is what was going to happen, mm-hmm. that this has become a blight, an environmental blight on the Windward Coast, mm-hmm. and I think we can argue about all of these things, and we can argue it on the around the pivotal issue of good stewardship mm-hmm. and responsible environmental management. Yeah. But I don't think that discussion is ever going to take place. Yeah. So th- those are my reasons. Well, responsible environmental management uh, is kind of the next topic I wanted to touch on because that well, jumps us from 1974 uh-huh. up to 1989, was it? Right. 1987? Right. 89. 89. 89. No, no, 87. 87. Yep. So what, what happened in 87? You said you were living in Haula and... No. No, in 87, in 87, this is after I had bought this property in Kaawa, uh-huh. the one that you've been to. Yeah. And in 87, I'd come back in <coughs> whenever it was, um, 72, 73, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And I met Don Wasson and then got involved with the strike in La Year, the one that we've just talked about. Mm-hmm. And then I'd left and gone back to Australia. Okay. And then I'd come back here as a subpoenaed federal government witness. After Australia. We nailed down that that the 8A1C3 violation. Don Watson was involved in that too. Okay. But she wasn't a witness. Uh, so I reacquainted myself with Don. I went back and then we came back. And so I'd been here for a while. Mm-hmm. And Don Watson came to me one day and she said, you know, there's something wrong with poor Hailey Wetlands. Oh, oh, what's wrong now? And she said, well, you know, all the taro's dying and it smells. And I said, mm, okay. And I didn't know anything about the layout up there, the geographical layout. I said, well, you know, if there's something there that smells and taro is rotting, it's got to be coming from somewhere. You know, this is a logical explanation. Mm-hmm. 
Anyway, one thing led to another, and I uh, said, well, you know, have you looked? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, when have you looked? And she said, well, you looked during the day. And I thought, well, you know, maybe there's something happening at night. <laughs> and so uh, one night, at about 2 o'clock in the morning, we all gathered down there with flashlights, and we walked around, and uh, even with my s semi um audio um, impaired system, I could hear the sound of rushing water. As a matter of fact, I got a chapter in this book about that I'm writing about mm -hmm. here, the, this case, mm -hmm. called The Sound of Rushing Water. And I said, well, something down there. We went down and we see this 12-inch pipe, PVC pipe, gushing water. And by this time, I had acquired some familiarity with the Federal Clean Water Act. And one of the things that you learn about the Federal Clean Water Act is that there are two kinds of pollution discharges. <coughs> and one of them is the rough equivalent of a direct discharge. It's called point source pollution. Mm -hmm. The other one is a non-point source pollution. And in a, non, in a point source pollution case, a smoking gun is always a point of discharge. And so they photographed it. and. I didn't want to tell Don too much. It's my style. And I said, okay, let me do some checking and I'll get back to you. Yeah. And I went back to the house and wrote my notes up. No computer in those days. I had a small Remington portable typewriter. Mm. Wrote my notes up and I went to see lawyer at the what was then the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund. And uh, before I'd gone to see him, I'd gone to the health department and checked uh, their checked their uh, files <clears throat> because they have a NPDES reporting system. Mm -hmm. Found out that they had lied on surface. I had no evidence at the time that this water was exceeded um, the what would have come with the treatment level mm -hmm. tertiary secondary, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. But certainly it seemed prima facie that they were polluting the waters of the United States. Yeah. I told the lawyer that, or a lawyer just about fell off his chair. And I asked him whether they'd take the case, and they, they took it. Yeah. And then we sued, and uh, they, at some point, one of the crazy engineers that they had hired while doing a site visit out there with us, said, we'll have this fixed in a couple of weeks. And I said, be my guest. And uh, it turned out to be one of these empty, stupid things that engineers say. And we took them to federal court. And um, they, um, uh, as is customary in these circumstances, um, they were invited by our lawyers to enter into pretrial discussions if mm -hmm. they wished to. Mm -hmm. They did. They brought a guy down called Bram. Bramhall, 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 Bramhill, you know, classic church lawyer, I think. Um, you know, pinstripe suit, $165 Dior tie, yeah. hair combed back very neatly. Yeah. And he comes down and he offers us $30,000 for settlement. I'm on the negotiating team. Mm -hmm. I represent the, the uh, plaintiffs in this case. Mm -hmm. Dawn's organization, we had to have an organization. Right. And unfortunately, we got mixed up with this organization called Hawaii's Thousand Friends. Mm -hmm. And they had a guy, who, Holly guy, who was raised in Argentina 
and who taught English. He's a Chaucer scholar, mm-hmm. older guy, uh, terrible racist background, which he acknowledged. Mm. Uh, he was here as an environmentalist of kind. He would represent the other plaintiff organization, mm-hmm. namely Hawaii's Thousand Friends. And we had this. What, what were they called? Hawaii. Hawaii's Thousand Friends. Hawaii's Thousand Friends. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. I think they had about six friends, but they called themselves Hawaii's Thousand Friends. And so. <clears throat> How did they get involved? Well, we needed. It was a mistake on our part uh-huh. because in order to file the case, all we needed is one organization. Yeah. And we got talked into, and I wasn't paying attention. We got talked into having them join this case. Mm-hmm. It was a big mistake, but I corrected it afterwards by simple, you know, the force of my personality. When when the settlement was finalized, we get to the settlement in a minute. They tried to horn in on it, and I literally told them, "Look, don't start this." And so we got rid of them. But anyway, back up. The uh, Bram Hall comes, offers us thirty thousand dollars. We said this is bullshit. Go, go away. And we'll see you in court. You know, we came here with nothing, and we'll see you in court. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> our lawyer said he didn't know the local terrain. He certainly didn't know me. Mm-hmm. And I knew him. I dealt with these guys before. And uh, I said, look, you know, we came here with nothing. Prepared to go away with nothing. We'll see them in court. you got a good case. You've got an open and shut case here. Anyway, three or four days later, they came back and said they were prepared to listen a little bit more. And then I had that celebrated discussion with Don Wasson and her husband and some other people. There was a crooked Samoan who was on the team. She had dragged him in. This is some of the bad company that Don Wasson keeps. And uh, yeah, they were all there, seven or eight of us. And I said, look, well, time has come where you're going to have to decide whether you're going to fish or you're going to cut bait. And the lawyer is asking us, how much do we want if we're going to settle this case? And the lawyer is saying, if you ask for even a million dollars, they're going to walk. And I said, you know, Skip, guy's name is Skip Spalding. I said, look, you know, Skip, these kinds of interventions in your part are prejudicial Mm -hmm. to our Mm interests. You're our lawyer. You're hired in order to do what lawyers do best. Mm -hmm. And even then, not very well. And that is, you handle the law. Yeah, and I this is celebrated discussion, very confrontational, <coughs> and I remember it very well. I said, you know, my ancestors, they were running all around magic carpets, and they were handling gold coins. And your fucking ancestors were running around with tails, and jumping from tree to tree. So don't give me this shit about about you know giving me unsolicited advice as to where we should start bargaining. Uh-huh. I am not interested in your thoughts. And yeah. if they are, you ask me to leave, and you can talk to them directly. I don't care. And he got a bit heated. And he said, well, you know, I can quit. And I said, you quit this case? This is the last case that you ever handled in Hawaii. I'm going to be picketing your office. So it got that bad. Anyway, everybody calmed down finally. And then it became a toss-up between, I said we should start bargaining at $10 million dollars. Because there were $40 million in potential fines. Mm-hmm. I knew. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know the Federal Clean Water Act inside out. Yeah. And I know about, about negotiating. Yeah. You know, I negotiated the 1959 strike. You know, I've got a lot of experience about negotiating. And um, so 
um, I said, you know, it would be dumb for you to begin negotiating at, at less than 10 million. Mm. Skip was saying, if you ask for a million, they're going to walk. Yeah. So, classic so you, case. Yeah, you guys are way, yeah. way the, far apart from The brown other. people are caught in a dilemma. And the dilemma is, are they going to listen to the white guy, who's the lawyer, mm-hmm. or are they going to listen to me, the brown guy, one of them, yeah. who is smart, but, you know, the thing about colonized brown people is that they don't have any self-confidence in themselves. That's why they're colonized. So they did what I expected them to do. They cut it down the middle. Mm -hmm. Solomon's wisdom. You know, cut the baby in half. And so he got instructions to go back. You know, I didn't want to mess with this. It was 3 o'clock in the morning when we were having this discussion. Everybody's tired and frayed. And his instruction was the next morning to go back to them and say, that we were prepared to settle this case for $5 million. And uh, in a, obviously, a momentous decision, they said that they would be prepared to offer $2 million for a comprehensive settlement. And so he came back, the lawyer came back, shamefaced. We were assembled in a conference room, and he said, you know, Jim, I'm really sorry I misjudged this. And I said, you know, Skip, shit happens. Yeah. And um, we need to decide what we're going to do now, and we need to get on with this so that we can bring it to finality and get them to sign the papers. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so now Dawn Wasson says, she says, well, can we ask them for, I don't know, seven or eight million? And I said, Dawn, you know, it doesn't work like that. You, know, you just want to make an ass of this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, all we can do is go below five now. It's somewhere between two and five. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> and my best judgment of the situation was that we could squeeze another half million out of them. Mm-hmm. And this is there's no rules for this. Mm-hmm. That it's just a matter of playing poker. And you either got a nose for poker or you don't. Mm-hmm. And so I recommended that we go send him back and get all of his legal fees and get all of my fees that I would charge them for at, I don't know, I forget what I charged them, $250 an hour. And, uh, and uh, they'd have to tack on another half a million. They agreed to everything except the additional half a million. They offered a quarter of a million. Mm-hmm. And the package was a quarter, two and a quarter million. Uh, they paid all of Skip's fees. And I don't know, mine came to about $135,000. Mm-hmm. And they paid me one hundred and twenty-five. They cut it back by 10000 And to tell you the truth, I didn't expect to get a penny. Right. But this was my, you know, my um, part of my arrogance yeah. and part of my confidence in myself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, I was lucky. You know, there's always a luck element in this. And that's how come that case was eventually settled. Interesting. And then the aftermath of it was that, well, this was all memorialized in what's called a consent decree. And the two and a quarter million dollars was to go to a nonprofit which we established and of which I became uh, uh, the... Uh, Trustee? No, I was the I was the secretary of secretary, the secretary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, anyway, um, 
uh, <laughs> and then um, we, you know, had to manage this money, but we also had to enforce the consent decree. Mm-hmm. I think the Mormon Church, being the bad judge of Polynesians that they are, because the only Polynesians the Mormon Church really thinks think they know how to handle are Polynesians who, you know, ingratiate themselves in their presence uh-huh. and tell them what they want to hear and so on. I'm not one of those. And uh, th- I think they thought that what we would do with the money is that we would go out, buy a lot of beer, have a lot of parties, sit underneath coconut trees in the sun or in the shade, mm-hmm. scratch our armpits and drink beer all day long. Mm-hmm. Well, that wasn't on. I mean, I'm not that kind of Polynesian. Mm-hmm. I'm not even a Polynesian. So um, we said, your job is to do what's in the consent decree. You've got to fix that place up. It was called a remediation plan. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so, just just going back to to rewind a little bit. Um, how's how's the Laie community set up? It's it's essentially a a a, a, a company town of sorts. It yeah? is, yeah. Uh, Basically, uh, a company town. Yeah. When you strip away all of the window dressing, mm-hmm. company town. What does that What does that look like? Well. <clears throat> There's centralized power. Uh-huh. There's a number of peak organizations in, in Laia. Mm-hmm. Looking at it from the standpoint of community power structure. And at the apex of each of those organizational structures, there's a tight-knit, closely connected to the church group, HRI, same structure. Hawaii Reserves Incorporated. Right. Uh, Laia Water Company, another... Okay. Entity related to the church and created by it, mm-hmm. that has its own structure. PCC has its own structure, mm-hmm. similar. Mm-hmm. At the apex, it's run by white people. Okay. PCC. Brigham Young University, yep. same thing. Mm-hmm. At the apex, it's connected. And all of the people at the apex, they don't, they don't constitute necessarily a a um, conspiratorial group rigidly dedicated to to delivering on a good on a on a, a packet of of uh, pre-planned projects mm-hmm. but they certainly have discussions with each other mm-hmm. and they tend to work in tandem and they all have one thing in one thing in common and the one thing in common that they have is that they are members in good standing of the church and I don't know what their internal reporting mechanisms are to Salt Lake City. I think Salt Lake City doesn't, does, isn't, I'm guessing here now, I don't think Salt Lake City is interested in administrative minutiae. Mm-hmm. But I think it is very interested in balance sheets. Mm-hmm. You know, how much money is being collected here and how much money is being expended in order to keep this place afloat. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last guy who was here was a guy from Harvard. Um, forgotten his name. Begins with a W. And uh, his view was that that this place was awash in red, and therefore money had to be funneled from headquarters. Um, I don't know what the details are of that, but it is certainly a company town, yeah. and certain rules are rigidly enforced. Mm-hmm. 
And in any company town, there are the weapons of the strong and the weapons of the weak. Mm-hmm. And the weapons of the one of the big quivers, I mean, one of the big arrows in the quiver of the company town management is that if you break the rules sufficiently frequently, yeah. or if you break the important rules, then you get ostracized. No job for you in the community. That's mm-hmm. the ultimate sanction. Mm-hmm. That's enforced with fairly. I think I think that is enforced with not monotonous regularity, but with some regularity, uh, and it is a very important means of leveraging compliance, mm-hmm. because in order for this kind of system of sanctions to work, those who are the potential victims of being sanctioned, they must also know that if they breach the rules, what the consequences are going to be. Mm-hmm. This makes it mutually reinforcing. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a lot of that there. And that is one of the reasons that you have you have so much in the way of a community that refuses to take up the kinds of issues that you would might ordinarily get to take up if you were living in anything but a company town. Yeah. Huh. So that's basically the way I think it runs. Yeah. And, you know, I keep using the term Mormon church, and I want to explain why I use that. And my reasoning is as follows, that all of these entities in Laia, indeed the entire Laia enterprise, yeah. is an enterprise that is would not exist but for the existence of the Mormon church. Yeah. And all of these entities that exist there are ultimately related to and take their fundamental structural instructions yeah. from Salt Lake City. Yeah. And so if Salt Lake City doesn't act when there are complaints made to it uh-huh. about the infractions of either decency or the law mm-hmm. or good sense or environmental st- stewardship, you name it. Yeah. And if if the Mormon church hierarchy in Salt Lake City, whether it's President Monson or whoever, yeah. Uh, then my argument is that they are complicit in the breaches that are occurring on the ground here. Uh-huh. And if they don't fix it, then ultimately they have to be held responsible. That's the position from which I'm coming. Yeah. I understand there may be some arguments about this, mm-hmm. but that's the position that I have taken mm-hmm. and I continue to take with respect to dealing with issues that arise there. Yeah. So, you know, like the way I see that is it, uh, it seems like what you're interested in is creating accountability right. uh, for, for... Basically, it comes down to accountability. Yeah. Effective accountability. Effective Not accountability. accountability in theory. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, what you had in 1959 is the same thing that's happening here. Um, I wrote to the oil companies and I said, let's sit down and talk. Yeah. No, we've got a problem here. Mm-hmm. People want to do the kinds of things that unions are for. Yeah. And they ignored me. Yeah. And so eventually, um, if the pressure is kept up by the people who are calling for accountability, um, eventually some kind of accountability is going to result. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the record of the 1959 strike that I was involved in, you eventually get accountability. Mm-hmm. You know, all kinds of stuff comes down. Yeah. And here you've had peak events mm-hmm. that reflect accountability. Mm-hmm. In all the cases that I have participated in, the enforceability has come as a result 
of a lot of pressure. Yeah. The 1974 strike of the Fiji, involving the Fijians, mm -hmm. and then the the Clean Water Act strike yeah. is I mean the Clean Water Act litigation. Yeah, in 1987. Nin 1987. Yeah, uh, that is slightly different because we had a lot more leverage on our side. Yeah, but in all of these cases, um, the uh, the. Uh, <clears throat> When you review them, and when I review them against the, and I've, there have been other skirmishes that I have been involved with these people mm -hmm. about, mm -hmm. when they tried to build a the sewage treatment plant next to a heiau, um, we took them to court on that. Mm -hmm. I forgot to mention and make clear that after the settlement and the consent decree, we took them back to federal court on three occasions, and we prevailed on each of those three occasions, and it cost them more money. And... We didn't, we didn't do what they thought we were going to do, that is sit underneath coconut trees, scratch our armpits, and drink beer. We insisted that they fix this situation, mm -hmm. and in the end, it cost them another $20 million. Yeah. Now, we had the power of the federal government uh, at hand, and we used that, and I have no qualms at all about using an adjective that describes my attitude concerning these people, mm -hmm. I used it ruthlessly mm -hmm. because I had them in a situation where I knew they had to comply. Yeah. And all I had to do was to keep the pressure up. Yeah. And I did that very well. Yeah. And they had to fix that sewage treatment plant, which at the time of the Federal Clean Water Act infractions occurring, uh -huh. was held together literally, almost literally, held together with chewing gum and bits of sticky tape. It was that bad. It was a wreck. Right. Yeah. It was a wreck. That's yeah. why they were discharging into the waters yeah. of the United yeah. States. Yeah. Recklessly. And they did one thing that all of lawbreakers in this country and elsewhere in the world do. That is, they gamble on not being found out. Uh -huh. Every crook in history does the same thing. Yeah. You gamble on not being find, found out. And there's a statistical possibility, statistical probability in all of these cases that some people are not going to be able to beat the system. Yeah. They'll get caught in the net. Uh -huh. And so they're accountable, and you take it from there. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, it's a good... You use the word ruthless, you know, in your, in yeah. your behavior. Right. But good thing you were. I mean, literally insufficiently treated sewage was being pumped into a marshland. And yeah. In the language of the Federal Clean Water Act, it's called the waters of the United States. Uh -huh. yep. yeah. Marshlands discharge water into the ocean. So, uh, you know, after you were successful in, you know, bringing this case to, to trial, and mm -hmm. what changed? Um, you know, you said you had to go back three times uh, because they were just slow to act. Is that what it was? or, or uh, You know, I could fudge this question uh -huh. and say, well, you know, the, the usual way to answer this question is to pat yourself on the back and say, well, you know, we won the the 8A1C3 violations case eventually. Mm -hmm. Not a huge splash. Um, didn't involve millions of dollars. Yeah. It cost them a lot of money because mm -hmm. at one point they appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and lost the Federal Clean Water Act lawsuit. Probably eventually cost them about, I don't know, 30 million bucks, 25 million, something in there. I could say, hey, you know, we taught them a lesson. 
But you know, these people are not the kind of people who get taught a lesson. Mm -hmm. And so my real response to you, you know, my hard-nosed, mm -hmm. brutal response to you is that they haven't learned anything. Mm -hmm. They're prepared to take another chance because they've got oodles of money. Yeah. Um, the only thing that I think deters them to some extent is that they know that they have a soft underbelly against stuff underbelly that doesn't withstand um, um, exposure, uh, media exposure. So they try to steer clear of that. Mm -hmm. But I think fundamentally their behavior hasn't changed. Mm. And if you had to say, is it likely to? I would say, I don't think so. Mm. So let me ask you this question in closing. Mm -hmm. um, looking at uh, this place today in our, our time mm -hmm. now um, what are the problems uh, that you think need to be addressed uh, what is what is going wrong um, you know that that should be corrected well the should be part is one part of the one part of your mm -hmm. your inquiry and well, let me address that. There's another part, and I'll get to that in a second. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the whole ideology of the place, its whole orientation, <clears throat> considering where the world is now, or where the world, where I think the world is now, mm -hmm. that you know, there are certain things that we say that we subscribe to. Yeah. One of them is openness. Uh -huh. One of them is participation from the ground up. Right. Another one is we use this mysterious world called transparency. Mm -hmm. um, we also, uh, as a as a society, more or less, yeah. it's not this is not universal, mm -hmm. but as a society, we say, well, you know, acting as good stewards of the land is a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about things like food su uh, sufficiency. Yeah, we say that's a virtue, mm -hmm. and. Um, we say that that environmental degradation is not a good thing, mm -hmm. and we talk about this mysterious thing called sustainability. Right. And if this place were to be made into a better system, and it were to embrace some of these "quote unquote" public virtues, mm -hmm. it would take a massive reorientation of how this place or or uh, how this place is currently being run. Mm -hmm. That sure. means that in critical decision-making positions, there would have to be a completely different set of people with a completely different set of mindsets in order to move this into in a different direction. Mm -hmm. What is the likelihood of that happening? The likelihood is close to zero. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, um, but, and, got it. I mean, yeah, you know, it's not going not yeah, to change. Yeah. yeah. So, but but what what do you what could change that would make you know Laie and Kualaloa a better place? What 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 could happen that would Im improve uh, either the uh, you know the, the 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 society here or the quality of life for people on a on a Broad level. Well, if you just confine it to the Mormon church entities in Laia, uh -huh. um, and that's a manageable 
you know, area around which we can have some kind of intelligent discourse. Yeah. <coughs> I think if I would put my money anywhere without a great deal of thinking about it, mm-hmm. I would say you'd have to have a massive change in, in top leadership. Mm-hmm. And that massive change means people who come to this enterprise uh-huh. with a completely different mindset different than values. all of the people. Values, yeah. Values, yeah. mindset, way of looking at the world, uh-huh. uh, way of doing things, okay. a receptivity to contrary advice and so yeah. on. Yeah. You know, if you had another major upheaval there, mm-hmm. even if it were really major, yeah. um, heads would roll uh-huh. and then you'd go back to square one. Yeah. And it would have to be something oriented around sustainability and transparency and these kind of... No, I don't think so. Those are diffuse issues. Mm -hmm. Diffuse in that they're like um, shotgun. Yeah. Uh, Lots of pellets. Mm -hmm. Um, You'd have to get them in a... a, a, uh, um, Over some other kind of issue, it'd probably be... Even environmental issues are very difficult to litigate, mm-hmm. but they'd have to be, you know, s- something else that would happen that would be meet several criteria in terms of in terms of it being classed as a major issue. Mm-hmm. You know, it would have major public impact. Mm-hmm. It would have to be something that draws a lot of press attention. I mean, it would have to be a a sort of if you can. If you can downsize 9/11 mm-hmm. to something that is of comparable size to this small society, yeah. we have that magnitude. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, those things are generally generally not planned. They they can be planned mm-hmm. on certain occasions, but you could get a major kind of a a major kind of serendipitous uh, event mm-hmm. that would blow this place wide open. What are the statistical probability chances of that happen? Well, no, you know, but they could. Yeah. And, uh, you know, is an explosive situation building up there, in my opinion? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I think there's some, there's some potentially serious issues. Yeah. You know, like the one that I'm trying to work on now. Um, yeah. But I, um, you know, the career issue. Yeah, um, we can leave that for yeah, a different time. That's, that's another time. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but um, yeah, I, I think I they're think not going to change for the sake of change, change right, sake. Right. Because what is happening now is working for them. Uh huh. Yeah, and you know, it seems that they follow a pattern of encroachment, where you know they push when they push so hard that the community starts to push back, they back off. But the agenda is always to keep pushing until, yep. until you know, they have all the land, they have the control of the water, uh, you know, or whatever else it might be. Yeah, yeah. you know, in, in a sense, uh, the strategy is, uh, the strategy is, uh, has its own impeccable drive. Mm-hmm. You know, they push... If the community pushes back a little, they make course adjustments, but they keep moving forward. And was the evidence for that? Just look at where it was in the 50s and where it is now. Mm-hmm. Been exponential mm-hmm. um, increases in both the size and the footprint mm-hmm. of where they are now. Footprint. So that's, footprint yeah. The footprint's 
an enormously important concept. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you see that they take that they take such enormous quantities of water, mm-hmm. and I'm well, I'm sort of scratching mm-hmm. at the surface of what could potentially be a huge problem for them. Yeah. And it has to do with water. And I know the local water code inside out. Yeah. And take a look at it and see where that goes. That yeah. could potentially, potentially have an impact. Um, I think the things that... Um I think the things that, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, those kind of major points about, you know, your work in Fiji, um, you know, the, the 1974 PCC strike, the 1987 Clean Water Act, mm-hmm. uh, you know, those are, those are all, mm-hmm. those are, those are all, uh, you know, in my opinion, uh, pretty, pretty momentous events because, um, oh. you know, it, what it did was it, it, it changed the way things were going. And yeah. you were uh, someone who stepped in, um, you know, whether as a matter of conscience or, or something else. But, you know, you said this needs to the future needs to be different than the way it's headed. Mm. And we're going to correct the course on that. Yeah. The you know, the um, the um, the. Um pessimistic evaluation of all of this mm-hmm. comes to us from Alice in Wonderland. Mm. And that is that the more things change, the more they remain the same. Uh-huh. I, I get that impression. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, all my life I've been looking for what I think of as momentous change. Mm-hmm. Well, the 59 strike brought momentous change. Fiji became independent. Well, quote-unquote independent. I think they made a huge mess of it. Yeah. But um, that is the 59 strike is much more important than any of the historians who've written about it um, say that it is. Mm -hmm. That was a momentous event. It wasn't planned like that, but that was the net effect of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because of the flow on effects, not only the political ramification, but also that breach with parity, big, big issue. Um, Even though the impact of that decision got weaker as we went along. Again, a leadership issue. Um, you take um, the uh, um, the um, eighty-seven Clean Water Act lawsuit. You know, straighten them out. Uh, it, they bled as a result of that. Yeah. But I don't think anyone. <coughs> you tend to get. You tend to get more change by accretion. Mm-hmm. If you've got continuity yeah. on the part of the leadership, mm-hmm. one of the things you don't have up here is that there is uh, very little continuity, yeah. and so that the that's a good point. The narrative record, yeah. mm-hmm. the narrative record, yep. is a f- broken one. Yeah. So that's another thing to consider. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah, and and that may be why uh, it's so difficult to change the leadership. Uh, you know, or at least the way things in Laie have been mm-hmm. administered is because the community isn't organized uh, in a continuous way. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's not only the community that doesn't have continuity uh-huh. of purpose and leadership. 
the side that is responsible for the problems there, they don't have continuity either, so that the, the, the record is consequently a fractured one. Mm -hmm. And so people keep revisiting the rediscovery of a wheel uh -huh. that is fundamentally broken. Uh -huh. And so you can't fix a recurring, a, a recurringly broken wheel yeah. if you have a recurrently broken leadership that doesn't understand why the last time the wheel was discovered to be broken mm -hmm. was in fact broken because you don't have this continuity. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's, that's sort of a problem. Uh, I have the advantage of continuity. But, you know, continuity in isolation doesn't really help all that much mm -hmm. because then I end up talking to myself. Yeah, you're just a hermit. Huh? You're just a hermit at that point. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah. Well, have we exhausted this subject? Is you know, I else? was I was going to say thank you. Uh, we went well beyond the forty-five minutes that we had budgeted. Well, you're going to have to edit it. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, you know you we'll, get it? We're, uh, we're going to go to audio. Okay, we're going to basically publish right to audio, okay. and we'll we'll uh, you know we'll 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 shorten it down a little bit. Sure, but uh, but for the most part, I I think uh, you know apart from some things that uh, had to do with. Uh, some work that you're doing now, which uh, we probably don't want to, right. uh, you know, talk about it yeah, I at think this that's, time. That's, that's, um, that's important. Yeah, I yeah. think I think uh, leaving the source material intact is uh, is generally a good thing. You know, I want to I want to see the source, not yep. not a uh, not a cleaned up version of, of sure. that. Um, so, you know, for I think in terms of, you know, what we've talked about today. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think leaving it as close to the original as possible is, is uh, yeah. you know. Ultimately, that's your privilege. Yeah. I've given you that privilege. Okay, well, thank because you. Because if I didn't think that you were worthy of that privilege, I wouldn't do this. And, you know, it's a matter of the kind of things that we've talked about. Mm -hmm. I think we're coming from the same place. Yeah. That there's still something of value in the world yeah. that we call, call honor. Mm -hmm. and decency mm -hmm. and you beginning to talk about morality and in ethical mm -hmm. responsibilities and so on and i think those are still good things in the world mm -hmm. and maybe there's little of it in evidence mm -hmm. but those are still good things they're good underpinnings that make us test our humanity mm -hmm. and they're good things for that reason yeah that um you know, there's so many things that can go wrong in the world. And there are some things that I think that are, ought to be enduring. Yeah. And I think some of the things I mentioned are things that should, we should do everything we can to help them endure. Mm -hmm. Because it helps us, um, it helps us keep the world, you know, a very troubled world yeah. on more or less an even keel. Yeah. And I don't think it happens, you know, right across the board, mm -hmm. but wherever it happens in small spots and yeah. in clammy niches and so on, yeah. that it should be encouraged. Mm -hmm. and that's sort of the motivation that I have. And, you know, in terms of all of the things that I've done, you know, well, it's kind of an interesting life. I've lived mm -hmm. my life on the edge of a knife mm -hmm. in a very large part. Mm -hmm. um, I could have been a lot more wealthy if I'd played it differently. I've never been really interested in wealth. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 
these are interesting times to me yeah. because when you get to be you know 80 and you're moving on you recognize that your candle is burning down and you if you continue to do things that are meaningful to you mm-hmm. but if you fine tune the way you do them i think that's a mark not only of enormous resilience mm-hmm. but it is a mark also of an enormous enormous um um intellectual refinement mm-hmm. that it shows that you have grown up in a way i don't think one ever finally and completely grows up mm-hmm. i think that's a good sign that if we reach a point where we can say we've grown up it's somewhat like saying mm-hmm. that we have achieved some kind of perfection yeah. and in my book Anytime you see the word perfection, I think you should become enormously suspicious. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm ideologically and philosophically mm-hmm. a skeptic. Mm-hmm. I don't believe anything that I see, whether it's on paper or on somebody speaks to me about it yeah. or any of those things. Mm-hmm. And I feel very comfortable with myself for being, being a skeptic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm wedded to certain principles that I don't think of every day but one of them is that um, there is nothing fundamentally exciting about agreement it is disagreement that makes us be- the better people that we can become mm-hmm. disagreement is enormously exciting mm-hmm. disagreement is what drives the world mm-hmm. disagreement is what produces Steve Steve Jobs disagreement is what produces Google mm-hmm. You know, it's disagreement from which we d- derive all of the things that we find exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's disagreement with the world that produces a Faulkner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I read something like, like somebody like Faulkner mm-hmm. and I read Absalom, Absalom, mm-hmm. I am enormously impressed mm-hmm. at the way that he disagrees with the, how the world is portrayed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these are the things that I've learned, you know, I'm a critic of this country, but it has adopted me, and it adopted me not by saying, hey, we've adopted you, now you better be better. No, mm-hmm. it doesn't say that. Mm-hmm. It says, we've adopted you. you. You cut your own swath. And I like that about America. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this country can be very punitive. I mean, look at the destruction that occurred of lives particularly, and careers, and fortunes, and children, and wives, when House on American Activities Committee was meeting <coughs> on no other issue but an issue that is now fundamentally settled, that you can live with people you call communists. Mm-hmm. They are not interested in taking your country over. Mm-hmm. Or maybe proven wrong yet. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, this country has been a country of ferment. Its roots are in ferment. Its roots are also in... in in uh, defending vital principles. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, whether or not you agree that that Lincoln was all about ending slavery and we had a civil war in this country over that issue, I think it's fundamentally true that slavery was an important reason for the civil war. You kicked out the British when you had to. You've done some really, really dumb things in this country, Mm -hmm. like the war in Vietnam was kind of dumb. I I think that Afghanistan and and, uh, Iraq, Iraq, uh, you know, have given you a worse reputation than you might have had. And when you look at something closer to home 
and closer to this time in our lives. I have many disagreements across the board with Obama. But I'll say one thing, for the eight years that he was in the White House, we didn't have a new war. There's something to be said about that. And you know, he, he's clumsy in many ways, mm -hmm. despite you know, his intellectual refinement and so on. But you know, he put a human face to the presidency. So you know, all of these things are good things about America, even though uh, you know, I'm in fundamental disagreement with the way that Americans have conducted foreign policy. Mm -hmm. You know, the interventionist impulse in American foreign policy is not to this country's credit, but mm -hmm. there is an important reason why America behaves as it does. Mm -hmm. If you are as important as America in the world, then you do some of the stupid things that you do, and because that is necessitated by reason of the fact that you are a major power in the world. Mm. And so I like discussing these kinds of things, mm -hmm. and those are the kinds of things that I stand for. Yeah. And they're driven mostly by reason, mm -hmm. and a, not a small amount of passion. Mm -hmm. And reason, passion, good sense, um, you know, knowing your stuff, these are things that America still rewards people for. Yeah. Jim, those are all good notes to end yeah. on. And, uh, Thank you. Right. Thank you very much.